we're going to continue on in our study of the parables. Uh, my grandparents uh, have this table. It's a round circle. It's a circle table. Uh, but there's this mysterious thing that happens. They have all of these little pieces of wood. They're about four feet wide called leaves. I don't know why they're called leaves. If someone knows, tell me later. Uh, but what they do is they keep adding them into the table. Uh, whenever there's people coming over, they come from underneath beds. They come out of closets. One is in the bathroom, which is kind of odd. Uh, they come from the barn, and the table just keeps growing and growing and growing. It gets bigger and bigger so that family can sit around the table, so that friends can sit around the table. And a lot of times, just strangers, people they don't really know, get to come and sit around the table. And they've been doing this really for 50 years as they've been married. That table has, you know, been there and continues to grow and expand. It's like that, you know, miracle from the Bible or something that, that never got told where Jesus took a table and he thanked God for it and it kept growing. <laughs> but what uh, is amazing about that too is it's not just a place to eat that table in my, my grandparents' house. Uh, it's a table where people relate with one another and where they belong. Uh, long after the food has been eaten, long after uh, the pie has been eaten, long after the coffee has been drunk, we still sit around that exact same table and relate and talk and get to know one another and share stories, often the same story I've heard about 50 times now. There's about a dozen of them. Get shared again and again and again. It's a table, uh, a place of feasting, a place of communing with one another, a place of being it's also a place of belonging. Uh, we don't really use tables like that anymore. Uh, that's not really the purpose that we have for the dinner table. Uh, we have fast food, we have uh, ordering out, we have quick meals. Tables are like gas stations for us. Nobody really, once you turn 18, says, hey, let's go hang out at the gas station. Like, if you're still doing that, it's like, that's called arrested development. It's like, grow up, there's cooler places to hang out. But what we do is the table for us is like a gas station where we're just there to fill up, to get on with it, and to move on. But move on to what? And move on to where? Like, we're, we're more lonely than we've ever been. We're more anxious than we've ever been. We're more aimless in this life than we've ever been. We've lost sight of the table. Uh, because we as humans, we were created for feasting. Uh, we were created for rest. Sarah's excited about that. But I look like I was created for feasting. You not so much. I don't know how that works out. Anyway, we were created for enjoying, for being, but also for doing. We were created to live in that amazing like existence in life, that dance where we create things, we rest, we create spaces for people, we enjoy those places. Like That's what we were made to have. That kind of life, that kind of delight, it's woven into our DNA, I believe, that we are people in need of not just motoring through. Like the problem with the gas station is it's made for like machines that we use for 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years if it's a Toyota or a Honda. And then we, like you see them on piles of, of uh, trucks just getting taken away to be thrown into a dump. That's how we use our lives. But we were created for feasting, for belonging, for resting. Uh, today's parable is an invitation into that kind of abundant life where we participate in God's work from a place of rest and where we feast on the presence of God 
in the company of people who need it just like we do. And so that's par- uh, Luke 14. I almost said it was Parables 14. That'd be, that'd be a cool book of the Bible. Someone should do that. Uh, Luke 14, verse 1 to 14 is today's passage. And I'm going to read it. It'll be on the screen, all lovely and stuff. It says this, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Then in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may show up, uh, may have been invited. And if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will, take, you will have to take the least important place. And when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to the better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends and your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, although you cannot, they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is God's word. Amen? Uh, what happens in this parable, it all takes place in this moment of Sabbath, this day of Sabbath. Sabbath is a day for receiving, for resting. Uh, it's a It's a time to enjoy. Uh, In other words, uh, the posture of Sabbath is humility. Uh, That that what you do on that day is you're like a child who asks for something, because they're all short. I duck down. And they they kind of, a child looks up and says, can I have? Can I receive? You cannot uh, accept a gift without putting your hands out in that kind of humility of, okay, I'm going to take it in. It's not something that you get to, to grab and, and, and pull something up. That's not receiving, that's taking. It's a day fundamentally around this posture of saying, I am not God. There is a God who created everything, who sustains everything, who built everything. It all belongs to him, and anything that I receive comes from him. That's what the Sabbath is all about. It was instituted in creation. The first chapters of the Bible describe God speaking and creating. Lots and lots of activity. It poetically uses these markers of days and a week that we all like really understand. Day one, creating. Day two, creating. Day three, creating. Four, five, six. And then seven, it says that on that last day, God enjoyed. He sat back and he said, this is so good. This is, this is good. And then he did not create. He just enjoyed and delighted in a creation that he had put together. Uh, God created the world and the resting of things. Uh, That's what we celebrate, and that's what Sabbath is all about. 
that there is a God who creates, who, who is in charge, and we are not. That there is a world and a, and a God that says, I want things and people to rest and to exist. And then ultimately, it's about just delighting in the fact that God is a knowable God, immersed in our world and in our lives. On the Sabbath, it's a, really an image of trust. It's the fourth commandment. I don't know if you guys knew that. It's the fourth commandment. It's the weirdest one, honestly, because it has these peculiar words. Uh, the rest are saying, hey, do this and do not do that. Like, that's, what the, that's how the commandments work. Then the fourth one is, is really odd. First three, all about God. Do this with God. Don't do that with God. The last are all about, hey, don't do this with one another. And then the fourth one, it says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Or if you want to get real tech, uh, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Uh, Exodus 28 is when this command comes up. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And then it goes on to say, six days you should work, but then on the seventh you should rest. And everybody in your house and all of your animals and everything that exists in your household within your control, you work for six days. You create, you do, you build, you nurture, you steward the world. But then on that seventh day, you rest. It's really amazing, this remember the Sabbath. Uh, remember that it's the day that God rested. Remember that it's the day that God declared all things good. Uh, if you remember the garden, if you remember that God, if you remember the rescuing, then you'll keep that day and you'll make it holy. Really interesting thing about Sabbaths, just like in the real world, is every seven days, they're just normal days. Like the sun comes up, the sun comes down. There's hurricanes on the Sabbath, there's tornadoes, there's earthquakes. It's just a normal day. The rain falls, the rain dries up. Uh, it's just a day. There's nothing spectacular. It's not like every seven days, you know, uh, the, the sky is filled with spectacular fireworks. Really, it's just the ongoing force of nature going on around us. Our bodies still need food on the Sabbath. Our, our, our bodies still need water. Birds are chirping. Uh, creation moves on. Yet the call that he has is to make this ordinary day that's just like any other day, make it holy. A day to exist with God within his world, trusting that he'll care for tomorrow, trusting that he's the one that brings the sun up and takes the sun down. Or I know, like, science isn't that way. We're revolving around. Anyway, he's the one doing that, right? That all you really need is him, and you trust in that. That's how you make that day holy. It is fundamentally a posture of humility, a posture of receiving. Uh, and that's really the heart of it. There's this medical doctor, Michael Sleeth, he observed, he wrote a book called 24-6, so you can kind of get it. It's about the, uh, the benefits of Sabbath. So you don't even have to believe in God to read this book and be like, oh, like that's why we're so messed up physically. That's his point. He was an ER doctor, served during 9-11, all sorts of things, and he really believes in the Sabbath. But what he says that's really fascinating is that if you remember God and you remember the Sabbath and you keep it holy, then it's basically from that posture impossible to break all the other commands. Because if you're, uh, it's a practice that just rightly orients your heart towards God. Like you can't be 
creating and worshiping idols if you're taking a day to rest, right? Uh, And so because of this, because this is the practice that just rightly puts us with God and with others, it became the primary thing throughout the Old Testament of accusing people of being faithful to God or not. It became the primary marker of, are we being a godly people? Are we being the people that he created us to be or not? What the prophets did is they just said, hey, are you remembering the Sabbath and are you keeping it holy? Because uh, they didn't remember and they didn't keep. Um, why was there so much injustice happening in the, in the kingdom of Israel? Because they didn't remember God and they didn't keep these things holy. Why so much uh, injustice and stealing and fighting and putting people down? Because they didn't trust God to be there for them. They didn't remember that he had rescued them. Why all the lying and why all the stealing? Because they thought they had to protect themselves from shame, from guilt, or even just the wild beasts out there. They forgot who God is. and They didn't keep those days holy. They forgot. Why all the idols that they built and that they worshipped and they cared about? Why those things? Because they didn't, they didn't remember a God who sovereignly works in every mundane, ordinary task. That you don't need a God of fertility and a God of rain and all of those things because there's one God who rules and cares for creation. They forgot, and so they didn't keep, right? They abandoned God. They didn't keep it holy. It's pretty true. It's pretty true for us as well. I know we're not Israelites or anything in the, in the way, way back day, but it's true for us. That the essential principle is true, that you cannot live a hurried life where you are God of your own kingdom. You can't live that life and at the same time honor God and care for the poor, the vulnerable, and your neighbor around you. It's, it's, just, it's just a fundamental thing. In the rushing around the world, we discard other people. Uh, In the fast pace, in the rat race or whatever, we leave casualties behind. God calls us to remember who he is and what he's done. God calls us to keep those ordinary days and make them holy with rest, with delight, that there is God and he is good. Uh, After the people of Israel failed to live out that life with God, remembering and keeping the Sabbath, uh, they were exiled. They were uh, sent away. They were packed up and their kingdom was destroyed. Their city burned. They cried over it as they watched it. It was a a multi-generational trauma. Like, I think we might have some sort of taste of that. Like, the last two years will be multi-generational trauma, like, for us. Uh, In the same way that the Great Depression, World War II was. Like, that's, that's what happened as they watched their cities burn. And what they decided in their hearts in those moments is that they would always keep the Sabbath from now on. Like, that became the, like, crux of it. When they got back to their land, when they were rebuilding everything, they're like, we're not going to be like those other people. We've progressed. We're not those Neanderthals who didn't keep the Sabbath. We're going to do it. And what they did is they, they added rules and rules and rules because they, they had this intense focus on it. We're going to be faithful. They shamed people who didn't remember or who didn't keep. But really what they did is they began shaming. Like the, the God got more and more distant and rules became more and more present for them. It's about what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. There's just a few lines around six days work, one day don't. 
but they made extensive rules. Uh, there's 39 categories of rules that people actually still follow, follow to this day. There's 39 categories of things that you can and can't do, how far you can walk. Um, they, and each of those categories has rules all on their own. You know, it's like one of those manuals that uh, you're supposed to get to follow all the CDC protocols. Like that's, it's like that kind of thickness, right? That, that you're just like, well, there's no way. But there's some people who feel like they could do it because they were going to keep it, that's for sure. The Pharisees made sure of it. Uh, the categories are around things like carrying, what things you can carry, how heavy you can carry. It gets really extensive, like, well, if you're in your house, you can carry things from one room to the other, but you can't carry things publicly. But you can carry uh, things within your house, but just make sure it's absolutely essential. So what people would do is be like, well, I've got to carry this cup of water over there, but I also want to pick up my book and I want to read it. So I'm going to go over there and grab this water, and I'm really, I'm just carrying the water. I mean, it was fascinating. The rule depth was so intense. And that's really, I know that's a lot, but we don't really have context for Sabbath. That's the context of this story. That's the environment. That's the history that's all behind it. And what you get in this sense of this passage, because it's saying that Jesus was going to eat with the Pharisee, it's kind of like he was on his way with a group of Pharisees, people that kept this Sabbath rules. He was on his way to their house. He was on that journey. And it was a day where they were probably coming from the synagogue, where they were sitting in a room like this. They listened to the scriptures. They probably sang some songs. They saw some candle stuff happening. And then they were walking, uh, not too far, because it was a Sabbath, to this other meal, right? And what happens is they see, uh, they see Jesus, and they're watching him carefully, it says. I love that Luke puts that out there. It's like there's, there's these people, and you can kind of get this sense of that life, uh, like the big brother life, where it's like, we have our eye on you, just like we have our eye on everyone, to make sure that you keep it, right? And they wanted to see what Jesus does. And Jesus sees this person who is in need of healing, and he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Really, it's a fascinating question, because it's, uh, can God heal on the Sabbath or not? Can God restore someone or not? Listen, that's a, like, it's a fascinating question because any healing that happens, any sort of reversal of somebody's medical condition that happens in a second, like that's, that's God happening, like working and doing something. And so his question is, do you allow God on this day to transform people, to make people whole, to heal them? Is it lawful within your framework to allow God to move and do something within your own boundaries that you've set up? Can God work within your limits and the constraints that you've put on him? And then Jesus, they don't answer him. Maybe they think it's against the Sabbath to talk. They're silent. God heals the man. And then he asks them another question. He's like, look, if you have a child or an ox that falls into a hole, won't you like rescue them? just because of the intense value that they have in your life? Like a child and an ox, I always find that really funny, like equal, just like, I mean, an ox or a child. But he's saying, look, this thing of incredible value, won't you, won't you rescue it? And again, they say, they say nothing. But implied in it is Jesus saying, look, God can do what he wants to do on any day. 
Every day for God is a holy day. Every day for God is a day of healing, a day of restoration, all of those things. And if you are his child, if you're his created thing that he has incredible uh, love for, that you have intrinsic value because you are made in the image of God, right? Like that's what the story says. Then won't he heal and rescue if you fall into a ditch and a hole? God will save and he will rescue his children when they fall in danger There's no limits. And that's really what the whole story is about. That Jesus sees a whole host of humanity suffering and dying and and broken by evil. And he says, well, I'm going to enter and I'm going to make it holy. I'm going to make them holy. I'm going to raise them from the dead. I'm going to die for all that sin, all that evil. I'm going to rise again on the third day and you will be saved. Like if if you'll save your own son, and your own daughter, and your own ox. Don't you think God will too? I think that's what he's talking about. These people were keeping the Sabbath, but they actually didn't remember God at all. They did rules, but it wasn't holy. Uh, They didn't invite the living God into the stuff of life. They'd squeezed them out. But God's rescuing mission exists outside the limits that we will put on him or that they put on him. I think that's pretty interesting. Don't you? Some head nods. That's pretty interesting. Next, they arrive at this table. The table is where they're supposed to feast, like the one I described about with my grandparents. The Sabbath feast is like Thanksgiving, but it happens every seven days. Pretty, pretty great tradition in history. I think we used to do like meat roasts and stuff like that, but now, now we just order tacos, but they were having this huge feast, uh, uh, and they were having it every week. The table is a time to relax, to indulge, just to sit there, and just to kind of realize when you're eating, like, ah, I can trust God, can't I? Can I trust the God who sets this table before me, where I get to feast and delight in it and these other people? Look at what God has given us. Like, that's what the feast is for. But when they get to the meal, they're talking, and they're moving around, and they're jockeying for positions. They're striving. That's, this is their environment, these religious people. That's where they're working. This is where they're going to get higher up the ladder. Uh, they're politicking. They're moving themselves. For them, the table was just a platform for advancement, right? And to avoid losing status at the same time. So they're just like fighting over these seats and the, It's pretty amazing. And then God calls them out by telling them this story of humiliation. The story of people who who come to those feasts, and he's like talking about them. It's really great. I wish I had the skills to be like, I'm going to tell you a story, but it's really about you. Uh, There's this guy who stole my parking spot, and it was you. No. But he tells this amazing story about humiliation and embarrassment, of people coming to a wedding banquet and using the wedding banquet as a way to advance themselves and how that will just come tumbling down on you because the status that you're seeking, you're going to lose because you missed out on the whole purpose of the feast at all. He says at the very end of that, that story, he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's pretty interesting too, right? 
yeah, head nods. And this story, the, these parts of it, just resonate so much with how I think uh, our little city here, our little small town, operates. Uh, we're a city with a culture about boundary making, about creating safe spaces, about capacity and about limiting things. We don't call it Sabbath. I mean, that would be so weird if we call it Sabbath, but we call it self-care and, and, and self-limits. We evaluate how much space we can give to issues and problems. Uh, we've been burned out before, and so now we're going to put up some rules around that, really rigid, strong rules so that never happens again. Essentially, we build walls to ensure uh, that we won't go crazy. Like that's, we're a city that firmly believes in that. And look, it's not new. Like If you like, read up on the origins of yoga, I mean, and I like yoga, but it's, it's the thing that we created in Hollywood like 60, 70 years ago where we could do this kind of self-love, self-care thing. It's what's driven our city, I think, since it was started. I think it's pretty fascinating that, that these boundary makings, uh, these boundaries exist and we follow them that kind of religiously. But we're also a city with a real high vocal self-view uh, of caring for the everyone, the everyman. We care about the poor. We care about injustice. We care about the breaking of things. We care about tensions. You know, the, the person under the side of the road, man, that's a problem we really got to fix sometime. I'm going to fix it next election. You, you, you just watch. Uh, the, the, the people on that other side of town were like, oh, yeah, I, I'm so bummed that that happened to them over there. Like, I care. We're a city that says we care. Uh, we care about those other schools far, far away. Yeah, that's really not fair. But I'm glad my property taxes feed this school, right? We can't step into any of those things and those problems, those issues in our society. We, we can be vocal about it, but we can't step into those things because we're making ourselves well right now. We're doing our own personal work right now. You know, my, my yogi is telling me to avoid that kind of stuff because I can't, I can't handle it. We have boundaries, that's why. But we have passion, but our, but our boundaries won't let us. Kind of like a person who's uh, sick and dying on the side of the road, and they're like, well, we've got to get to our Sabbath meal because this is the Sabbath. We can't care for this man. I don't think God wanted them to, that Jesus wanted them to stop and, and heal this man because that's what he does. But I think he might have anticipated are these people who just sang songs and read scriptures about the never-ending faithfulness of God, are they going to stop and care about this person at all? Or is that against their rules? Uh, we're not hustling uh, for those people to care for the vulnerable because we're, we're doing that care, that self-care. Uh, those people are a burden that we can't carry. That's an area that we've already predetermined. God will not heal God will not restore, God will not move, and he will definitely not use me. We're also a city that hustles for what we want, like the picture of the feast and the table. I mean, I just think that that, that is what it is. Like the Super Bowl that's happening today, you would think that it would be about a football game, right, in Inglewood, but it's really about a, like 70% of the tickets are sold to corporate corporations that are jockeying for position, like we can't even just enjoy a sports game anymore, right? 
It's all about jockeying for position. That's how we live our lives too. We want to know the right people. We want to get noticed. We want to move ahead. We want to gain respect and gain admiration. Fighting for your actual space, whether it's parking or housing or that seat at the literal table. Uh, I mean, how many apps have we created to ensure that we get a seat at a table somewhere? And we just think this is how the world works. It's about networking. It's, it's advancement. It's ambition. It's survival. It's striving, right? But what this, this story that Jesus tells and the way that he lived in this passage says to me that you cannot strive for rest. You can only receive rest. It's interesting to me that we work so hard to set boundaries that are supposed to ensure that we're rested and that we're whole and that we're healed, and yet we do not have any of that stuff. We're striving for that wholeness, but we don't feast on it. I think Jesus is saying that that these people, and I think it's true for us as well, that we're hustling in all the wrong ways that we're putting boundaries at the wrong spots, and that we're using the places of feasting and places of rest as a place to advance our work, and then we're using the place where we should serve and care for those, we're using those to block God's work altogether. And I think that this is really important, obviously. See, at the synagogue or on the Sabbath, that's where they're supposed to receive and they're supposed to feast on the word of God, exist, be present, all of that stuff. Remember his activity in, our, in their world. Uh, remember his power. That's what they're supposed to be doing, right? And then they're supposed to be people of healing, a, a kingdom of priests, right, that, that blesses the whole world, where they serve and they heal And they give from a wealth of God, a wealth of understanding that God has set that table before them. Won't he set it for others? Doesn't he have a never-ending, always-extending table? And then at the Lord's table, we're supposed to be and eat and relax and exist and be present. To cherish in that communion that we have with Christ because he's united us to Christ. And then at your table, is it, is it to be opened up as a place to serve, to create space for healing, to give from a wealth of a God who's given so much to you because you've tasted it at the Lord's table? See, the kingdom of God is this kind of grand reversal. Uh, this is what Dr. Michelle, uh, man, now I lost her last name. Anyway, it's what she always talks about, that the kingdom of God is this grand cosmic reversal and a personal reversal for us. That in our pride, we think that we have to look out for ourselves because no one will lift us up and no one will give us rest. But then Jesus says, I am your rest and I will lift you up. We also think in our pride that I can't help those people because they don't deserve it or or they don't help me back. What will I get out of it? What will I get out of helping these people and stepping outside of my boundaries? Jesus says, the humbled will be exalted. The greatest way that you can participate in God's work is to do what he does. Like that's really just a basic, simple like rationale. The way that we participate in God's work is to do what he does, right? He exalts the outcast and makes them dinner guests. 
He takes the poor and the vulnerable and he raises them up. He, he takes the wicked and the, the out of sorts and the, the discombobulated people and he brings them into a family and into a home. And while this is a reversal of our thinking, this kingdom of God coming, it's what we were created to do and to be. This is how we were created to be. It's like our default settings have been put off. We, we think that, that, that what God's talking about, that's wild and crazy. But what he is saying, what Jesus is saying is, this is what you were made for. You were actually created to receive from God and extend to others. That's how you were made. It's, not a, it's, it's the essence of the human existence. This other thing we're doing is dehumanizing, first to ourselves and then to many other people around us. Why don't we find the rest in our boundary-making and status-striving? Why aren't we like finding rest in all of that? Because we weren't made to be kings of kingdoms. He didn't fashion us and say, man, I can't wait to just plop them over here and then they just take care of it themselves all on their own. We were made for God. And we will not find our rest until we find our rest in him. And that's Augustine, not Brad. And so I do, uh, when it, then he says, sorry, I'm going to skip a part because I got too excited earlier. He speaks to the hosts after all of that. He says, when you throw a party, don't just invite your, the best and the brightest. Invite the weak and the poor and the sick and the needy. As we started this year, we talked about having a, an invitational mindset, a mindset that says, I want to invite people in, a, a mindset that goes from how can I build boundaries to how can I make space for other people instead of just holding space for myself, bring other people into it, welcoming the needy, considering the needy, thinking of those who need a meal, thinking of those who need communion and relationships. Thinking of those, those people in your life that need a listening ear, who need someone to laugh with them and to, to tell a joke and to laugh really loud. Who needs a family? Can we invite them into it? And there's places of invitation, places of feasting, because that's what he talks about here. Have a big dinner party and invite the people who can't pay you back, the people who are needy, can you invite people to those places of feasting in your missional community when you have a meal? Can you invite people in who just need a laugh and to see other faces who say, you exist and you're a person and I love that God made you as you are? Do we invite, can we invite people into these moments of feasting where we're feasting on the word and the songs and the prayer and the communion? Like, do we invite people to these things too? And maybe it's none of those structures within our church. Maybe you can just invite people to tea or invite people for dinner, or invite people for a walk on the road. Uh, sometimes I get asked, not a lot, but sometimes I get asked, what's the picture of a missional community success for us? What's the, what's the picture of that, hey, we're all participating in the kingdom of God thing? Uh, what does it look like for us to be signs of faithful trusting of Jesus uh, in his mission? I look, this is how I do it. So now you know my metric. You ready? It's in a spreadsheet. I'm just kidding, it's not. Maybe we'll make one. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, 
I look at our dinner tables. I look at our coffee dates. I look at our backyards. And I ask, are we sharing those tables with people who need it? Are we sharing uh, with those who need community? Are we sharing those with people who need relationship? With those who have grieving hearts and those who need mercy? With those who are broken? With those who are hurting? Are, we, are our dinner tables, are, are those people invited to them? Do they find their ways to our dinner tables or find their way into our coffee date schedules? Does that happen? Are we welcoming people into our lives with the belief that Jesus is the God who rescues and heals and restores? Uh, There's an Episcopal priest uh, who was also a very talented chef. He wrote this great book called The Supper of the Lamb. Uh, It's really old. If you want it, I'll let you borrow it. But this is what he says. He says, the dinner party is a true proclamation of the abundance of being, a rebuke to the thrifty little idolatries by which we lose sight of the lavish hand that made us. What he talks about, and he goes into like how you prepare the food, it's, it's really it's fantastic, like theological reflections on every part of a dinner party, uh, like a, yeah, a dinner party. It's so much better than Martha Stewart or Pinterest, but it takes a lot more work, so... Like mental work. Anyway, what he's talking about is there's nothing greater, there's no greater proclamation that we can do with our hands than throw a dinner party in which we say, I'm going to share all the good stuff. I'm going to bring out the good wine, the good meat, the good things, and I'm going to share it with people. Because, and this is what he's saying, not because that's the right thing to do and we're going to make new rules like the Pharisees, but because we haven't lost sight of the lavish hand that made us, because we see our lives as if we're people sitting at a feasting banquet, and we say, wow, look at the king who set a table before me. And the truth is, is that our tables are our greatest resource for mission. It's the greatest platform in which we get to see and participate in his work. And it's not just for the poor and the vulnerable, but it definitely includes them. It's for the poor in spirit, the relationally vulnerable, the enemy, the nosy neighbor, the recluse, the cranky, the isolated, it's for them. And that's the challenge part, right? Right now we could all think of fun people, like, oh man, that soccer dad, he's fun. Like, I should go get a drink with him. But then I think, oh, that other dad, right? Or that neighbor whose dogs keep barking, It's ironic that they had rules about healing because they didn't have the power to heal. It's as if they wanted to be in a position to give Jesus permission to work and to move. And I I wonder for us as a church, are we kind of that way too? And we want to be in this position to evaluate how long is God's healing arm and, and do I need to be the quality assurance person around here to be like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, do something. You can. You can do it this time. Or do we have this perspective that he is inviting all the poor and the powerless? He says, don't be expected to be re- invited back. Don't expect this thing to be returned. You might think, won't this lead to exhaustion and to burnout all over again? This narrative in Luke, though, is a challenge uh, to around where we're putting up boundaries 
and where we're moving with courage, where we're feasting and where we're agents of healing, that we would feast in these spaces, feast in our DNA groups, that we would remember the Sabbath rest that God created all things, that we get to delight in him, that we would then embrace the vulnerable and the outcast from having remembered those things, uh, that we would invite people into these places of healing. It's really, really good, right? I want us just to pause, and I know I got too excited. I have many, many apologies, but it'll just give the water more time to warm up for sweet Lucy. She won't freeze. So I, it's going to be the warmest water we've ever had. Right, Trip? Yeah. So I just want us to pause and take a few minutes, and you can just quietly like, think to yourself, trying to listen to God. I want you to, to pray and ask, who is he calling me to welcome and to invite to my tables? Who is, he, who is he filling up that dinner party list with right now? And so uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a few minutes quietly right now, and, th- and then I'll finish, I promise. Yeah. Maybe you can make a little note around who those people are, what that list is. Mental note. Sometimes physical notes are cool, digital notes. Uh, but I want to invite us to the, the gospel feast, the communion, the Eucharist, all of these things. Uh, it's the same thing. Uh, on the night before Jesus died, he had a feast with his friends. Uh, and they, they sat around a table. It was a bunch of them, a big, awesome dinner party. But then he made it real serious because he, he took the bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. And then at the end of the meal, there was this cup that they would drink to kind of remember way back when, when Jesus saved them out of uh, Egypt, when God saved them out of Egypt. But he took that cup, and instead of saying that it was about that moment, he said, this is my blood given for you. Uh, Essentially saying, I am the Lamb of God who died and who is going to die to save you. Jesus became the least the very next day, uh, the least among all society, but he was the greatest, God himself. Uh, He invites every outcast to that table. Uh, He died to bring you close. Uh, He was raised three days later to raise you up. And so now you're invited to that table, uh, that table to believe, that table to remember and to keep. We get to remember his body and his blood. We get to keep it and maintain it holy. Um, And maybe you've been wrestling. Maybe you've been far away from God. uh, But this is a time to come, a a time to accept that invitation into his banquet uh, and to believe, uh, to repent from striving for, for life and for your own safety and your own rest And then it's a time to believe that through Jesus, you've been saved to an abundant life that is rest, uh, where all the penalties, all the burden, all the the wickedness of evil, sin, and death is taken from him, and now you get complete rest. Uh, So come and take communion. Uh, If it's with new faith or new belief, uh, tell that to other people. Uh, Later on, we're going to be going and we're going to be doing a baptism Uh, It will be available to those who want to make a declaration of faith as well today. 
where we praise God. That's what baptism is. We praise God for being buried and being raised so that we can be buried and raised to life. Uh, If Jesus is saving you, talk to someone around you uh, about what he's doing, okay? Let's go and take uh, communion now.